Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Good. Are you putting on a voice? No. You sound deeper than usual. Isn't this what I usually sound like? It sounds like you're doing like a Barry White thing. Oh. No, this is just my (laughs) voice. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing just fine. Been a busy weekend for us uh, because we recorded a bonus episode. That's right. We didn't hit our goal of reaching $150 each month uh, by our 150th week on Patreon. But as a big thank you to everyone who joined our Patreon, we wanted to give them a sneak peek, basically, of what a horror-adjacent bonus episode would sound like. So we recorded that this weekend, and it is currently exclusive to our Patreon. So if you want to listen to that, and you're curious about it, and you aren't already a patron, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. And also, thank you to Carsa Torvald, uh, who was an existing patron, but upped their patronage level. We really appreciate that. That was really a really nice treat. So, Ben, what are we watching this week? Well, this week, Sarah, we are watching a studio picture. Oh, that would be nice. From Universal International. It's The Creature Walks Among Us, the third and final entry in the Creature from the Black Lagoon trilogy. Isn't this also considered like the last film of Universal Classic Monsters, too? Yes, absolutely. Um, There are more Universal genre pictures to come, but... They sort of start moving, you know, into firmly sci-fi, like this island Earth, or firmly into, like, the giant monster movie genre, like Tarantula, or some sort of mix in between. Um, There are a few horror movies after this that are sort of lumped in with Universal Monsters, like the Mole People, but... Classically speaking, at least in terms of what Universal itself considers their classic monster lineup, this is the final film of that original period. Wow, so it's really the end of an era then. Yeah, absolutely. Future sort of Universal efforts to address this set of characters um, are definitely in the realm of trying to like, like bring spoof? Them, well, like bring them back. Uh, right, they're not part. They're not considered part of this like original run of movies, right? So characters like Dracula, Frankenstein, the Invisible Man, the Mummy, the Phantom of the Opera, the Wolfman, the Creature from the Black Lagoon. These characters will appear in future Universal films, but in efforts to revitalize them, right? Mm-hmm. So the Frank Langella Dracula of the 1970s, the Brendan Fraser Mummy of the 1990s. Um, the recent Invisible Man that had Elizabeth Moss in it, etc. Okay. Even the spoofs of this period are over. The final Abbott and Costello meet film, Abbott and Costello meet the mummy, came out in 1955, a year before this. Oh, did they never meet the creature? No, they don't. Oh. Well, believe for them. (laughs) Well, if it's the final entry, maybe we should take a look back to see where... How we got here. The very first Creature from the Black Lagoon came out in 1954, so two years prior to where we are now. That is episode 168, and it's currently ranked at number 29. Pretty respectable. Pretty respectable. It was directed by Jack Arnold, and it stars Julie Adams, Richard Carlson, and Richard Denning. So Julie and two dicks. (laughs) Now the plot synopsis of that film... Uh, There's a geology expedition uh, down in the Amazon, and they find a fossil of a hand with webbed fingers. So this sparks a a follow-up expedition with some, like, fish experts, namely uh, Dr. David Reed, played by Richard Carlson, his rival in science and love, uh, Dr. Mark Williams, played by Richard Denning, 
and uh, their love interest, uh, who is like the employee of Dr. Williams, Kay, played by Julie Adams. So as they go into the Amazon, they instead find a living fossil, Gilman. They don't call him that. That's the name we have given him. We as in, like, like popular culture. Yeah, that's his, like, official name on the part of Universal. Even though all the movies are called The Creature, blah, 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 I think he's typically referred to as Gilman um, to avoid confusion with Frankenstein's monster, who is also sometimes referred to as The Creature. Yeah. So, Gilman, he complicates the uh, romantic triangle and makes it a bit of a romantic square, if you will, uh, because he becomes enamored by Kay and hopes to make some fish fry with her. <laughs> so after capture attempts fail on the part of the expedition to try to capture Gilman, um, one case involving uh, this kind of chemical that makes fish float, they're like, okay, let's cut our losses, let's get out of here. But Gilman stops them in order to buy time to kidnap Kay, which he does. In the rescue attempt, Gilman is shot and he falls into the water and sinks down into the lagoon, presumed dead, but not confirmed. The sequel, Revenge of the Creature, came the next year, 1955. It's episode 177, if folks want to take a listen, and it's ranked number 58. Still not bad. We've got 178 movies on the list, Uh, so 58 is still pretty good. And, like, 30 spots down from the first one, but, Mm -hmm. like, again, pretty respectable. Yeah. Now, this is also directed by Jack Arnold and stars Laurie Nelson, John Agar, and John Bromfeld. So, continuing the tradition of, like, lady and then guy, two guys named the same thing. Laurie and a couple of Johns. Yeah. Now, Revenge of the Creature, you could say, is like the Lost World entry in the Jurassic Park movie franchise, in the sense of they go back to the lagoon and capture Gilman. Right. It's the New York sequence of King Kong to the first movie's Skull Island sequence. Yeah, that's a better analogy, because Jurassic Park won't be made for another, like, 40 years. But, you know, I think it's still a fair one to make. So they go back to the lagoon, capture Gilman, and bring him to Florida uh, to SeaWorld. Yep. As uh, the latest exhibit for study and eventually entertainment. So here we have Helen, uh, played by Laurie Nelson, who is a grad student studying fish. Joe Hayes has a crush on Helen. He is Gilman's keeper and played by John Bromfeld. And Helen falls for Professor Clayt Ferguson an animal psychologist. Her falling for Cleet mainly happens because she and Cleet are working on trying to communicate with Gilman. Gilman also falls for Helen, <laughs> and he manages to escape his enclosure, killing Joe in the process, uh, with the goal to get Helen and make some fish fry. Right. The escape of Gilman has made a bit of a stressful work environment for Cleet and Helen, so they decide to leave for a vacation slash stress leave up the Florida coast, uh, with Gilman stalking them all the way. Henry Gilman. Um, He does succeed in kidnapping Helen, uh, which leads Cleet to hunt down Gilman with the police force. They eventually get to them, and uh, through some of the communication commands set up earlier in the film, Cleet is able to get Helen away from the creature in time for the cops to open fire. And we see Gilman sink to the bottom of a river in Florida. Presumed dead, but not confirmed. Exactly. So Gilman has failed twice now to get a lady. Mm-hmm. So I can only assume that Creature Walks Among Us is Gilman getting a makeover in a 1950s-style rom-com. You're like 50% right. Oh my god, so he's going to meet girls the old-fashioned way? Mm, That's maybe not the 50% that you were right about. (laughs) So... Revenge of the Creature in 1955 was a big success. It made $1.1 million. Nice. Um, so another sequel was a natural proposition. 
Now, for the first time, a Gilman picture would not be shot in 3D. Uh, the first two films had been. Creature from the Black Lagoon sort of came out at the height of the 3D craze, while Revenge of the Creature came out right at the end. In fact, Revenge of the Creature was the final 3D film from a major studio of that period. Um, by 1956, the fad was well and truly dead, so we're just shooting regular 2D here. Okay. In another departure, the film would not be directed by Jack Arnold, who helmed the first two. Okay. Since Revenge of the Creature, Arnold had helmed a western called The Man from Bitter Ridge, and he had shot uncredited the final act of This Island Earth, uh, the scenes that were set on Metaluna. He followed that up with the giant spider movie Tarantula, uh, which was Universal's response to Warner Brothers' Them! Them. (laughs) Arnold said that it was a movie that was made because, quote, generally, people are very afraid of spiders. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, In this household, 50% are afraid of spiders. That's right. Following Tarantula, Jack Arnold directed four episodes of the TV anthology series Science Fiction Theater, and then he directed the Western film Red Sundown and the film noir Outside the Law. So it sounds like he's pretty busy. Yeah, he had really no interest in returning for another Gilman picture, By this point to him, that was kind of like a been-there-done-that proposition. Uh, So he suggested that his longtime assistant director, John Sherwood, be given the assignment. Well, that's nice. Universal International followed Arnold's recommendation and gave the 53-year-old, who had been an AD since 1936, the chance to helm the picture. Is this like a Riker situation of, like, (laughs) purposely choosing to be the AD? I have no idea, but this is his first feature film. Uh, The producer of the film remains William Olland, who created the Gilman concept and had produced the first two movies. In addition to The Black Castle, It Came From Outer Space, This Island Earth, and Tarantula, among others. This time, the story would be moving past his original King Kong-inspired outline, courtesy of a screenplay from Arthur Ross, who had been one of the co-writers of the screenplay for the original film. The cast stars Jeff Morrow and Rex Reason, who had just appeared together in This Island Earth. Jeff Morrow was a 49-year-old actor who had been a stage actor for most of his career. During the 1940s, he was the voice of Dick Tracy on radio. His first film role was in the 1953 biblical cinemascope epic The Robe. Morrow had excellent control over his voice and would alter his tone and pitch and volume for dramatic effect, making him a bane to sound editors. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. In This Island Earth, he played the role of the alien scientist Exeter. Uh, After this film, he continued to have a long career um, as a character actor in B-movies, TV shows, a lot of religious epics. I'm sure it's good money if you can get it. I think he was kind of a religious dude as well. Um, He retired from acting in the mid-70s and passed away in 1993 at age 86. Okay. Rex Reason was actually born with that name in 1928. Amazing. After discharging from the U.S. Army in 1948, he started acting at the Pasadena Playhouse, winning a contract with Columbia in 1951, and then moving to Universal International in 1953. He was six foot three with a very distinctive baritone voice, uh, so he won lead roles fairly easily. So this is the guy in The Silent Earth who, uh, when we watched it, we had to look up if he was dubbed because it was just, like, ridiculously baritone? Yes, he was the hero scientist in The Silent Earth, and yeah, his his voice is so deep that it sounds like he's being dubbed. Absolutely. His, like, acting career hit a brick wall in the early 1960s. There were a couple roles he wanted and didn't get, And he kind of ended up having to do stuff on TV that he wasn't happy with. Um, He transitioned to becoming a voice actor in the mid-1960s because of that. Um, But he lived to 2015, passing away at age 86. Okay. The Gilman's lady target this time is played by actress Lee Snowden. Uh, She was born Martha Lee Estes 
in Memphis, Tennessee in 1929. Uh, she married her high school classmate James Snowden at age 16 and moved with him to California when he joined the military. They had two children, a boy and a girl, and she divorced him after three years of marriage, uh, winning custody of her children uncontested. Okay. As Lee Snowden, she began modeling in L.A. She performed at a show for the San Diego Naval Base, basically just, like, walking out on stage to strut her stuff in, like, a bikini kind of thing, in front of 10,000 sailors. The response to her from the audience was so enthusiastic that she made the papers and was called by every major Hollywood studio the next day. Oh my god. Was uh, her ex-husband one of the sailors there? Because he's in the military. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know, but that would have been funny. Oh my god. She picked Universal International because of the strength of its acting school, and Creature Walks Among Us was her fifth movie role. Okay, so she has some experience acting under her belt. Mm-hmm. At a party at Tony Curtis's house after making this film, she met accordionist Dick Contino. The two were married when she was 27, and she left acting to take care of their three children that they had together on top of the two she already had from her previous marriage. Yeah, that's five kids. Mm-hmm. Like, absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of work. She passed away from cancer at age 52 in 1982. Oh, well, that's too bad. Mm-hmm. For the third and final time, stuntman Rico Browning plays the Gill Man for the underwater sequences. After this film, he would go on to co-write and co-produce the movie Flipper in 1963 oh, yeah. and the subsequent 1964-67 Flipper TV show. Awesome. Good for him. He would go on to a long career as an underwater stunt coordinator for movies like Thunderball, for instance. And today, he is the last living actor to have played one of the classic Universal monsters at age 90. Wow. Oh, hey, speaking of birthdays, um, the day that we are recording this would have been John Agar's 100th birthday. Oh, wow. So, as per usual, for the land sequences, a different actor plays the creature, and for the third movie in a row, it is a different actor in the suit. Um, So these, even though it's been Rico Browning underwater for all three movies, it's been a different actor each time for the land sequences. The actor playing the creature on land this time is in a very different suit design from the previous two movies for story reasons. Um, So it's not just like a change made for behind-the-scenes reasons. There's like story reasons why the creature looks different this time. So uh, he does, in fact, get a makeover. Um, (laughs) Amazing. Don McGowan stood a full six inches taller than Rico Browning. But luckily, the differences between, like, camera angles and everything when the creature's, like, in the water versus on land, like, make it difficult to tell that there's such a difference. Well, yeah, when he's swimming, he's horizontal. Exactly. (laughs) So he's actually six inches longer. (laughs) McGowan was a college football star and army veteran whose film career had started in 1951 playing like thugs. His first credited role would come after this in the Disney Civil War movie The Great Locomotive Chase later in 1956. Okay. I have never heard of this movie. Music for the film is once again by Henry Mancini, whose music had also graced the first two films. So we can expect the angry brass to arrive again. Yes, exactly. Um, Mancini would go on to become a major film composer of the 1960s. He's considered one of the greatest film composers of all time. Uh, He's a four-time Oscar winner, winner of 20 Grammys. Wow. Um, Best known for his long collaboration with producer Blake Edwards. Uh, Among his best-known works are the scores to Touch of Evil... Breakfast at Tiffany's, The Pink Panther and its many sequels, The Party, Victor Victoria, The Great Mouse Detective, and many others. Oh, shit. (laughs) 
in addition to the scores for those movies, he would also compose, like, the hit single or whatever to go along with them. <laughs> yeah. Like, Moon River for Breakfast at Tiffany's. Moon River, Obviously the famous Pink Panther theme and so on. The film was shot by Maury Gertzman, who had been working for Universal for a long time. He shot Jungle Captive, House of Horrors, She-Wolf of London, The Brute Man, and a lot of other Universal B-movies. So he's at least familiar with like how a horror movie should look. Editor Edward Curtis was also another longtime Universal editing staff member, uh, with credits going all the way back to the 1923 Hunchback of Notre Dame. Wow. Uh, Phantom in 1925, which had a lot, a lot of editors. 1932's Scarface, 1939's Tower of London, Invisible Agent in 1942, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman in 1943, Abbott and Costello Meet Boris Karloff, The Killer in 1949, Winchester 73 in 1950, The Strange Door in 1951, and many, many others. The Creature Walks Among Us was released on April 26th, 1956. It got good reviews um, from, like, the New York Times and other critics for kind of switching up the formula for the Creature movies and doing something a little different. Neat! It made a profit due to having a lower budget than the previous two movies. But it was sort of clear to the studio that the premise had run its course and that the trend in monster movies was now for, like, giant monsters, like big giant bugs and other creatures attacking cities because of radiation and stuff like that. So there's no more Gilman movies after this one. Okay. You can find The Creature Walks Among Us on DVD and Blu-ray as part of the Creature from the Black Lagoon Legacy Collection. No streaming options, dang. No. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along with us. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Creature Walks Among Us, from 1956, directed by John Sherwood. See you on the other side, everybody. Back to Scream Scene, we just finished watching The Creature Walks Among Us from 1956, directed by John Sherwood. What did you think, Ben? Oh, um, I really liked this one. I also really liked it. They definitely broke the mold. We have never seen anything quite like this on the show before. True. True, true, true. The first part of the movie feels very familiar, but then, like... It goes to some very different places, and even the parts in the second half of the movie that are familiar are being utilized in like a really new way in service of a very different kind of story for these sorts of movies. Yeah, but it is nice to see, you know, we talked about this movie being kind of the final entry in both Gilman's story and the classic Universal Monsters series. And it's nice that they kind of go out with a bit of a bang rather than a whimper. Sure. I just think about Dracula's daughter. Mm. <laughs> just an unfortunate, like, whimper into the night. But yeah, I'm glad you like this. So let's talk about the story this time around. Yeah. We have four main characters. There's other people, but these are the four that are most important. We have Dr. William Barton, played by Jeff Morrow. Marsha Barton, his wife, played by Lee Snowden, Dr. Thomas Morgan, played by Rex Vreesen, and Jed Grant, played by Greg Palmer. So Barton is leading an expedition to the Florida Everglades to track down Gilman. He's the lead scientist on this, and he is hoping to determine what kind of secrets he can glean from Gilman being like a half-fish, half-mammal being, 
and determine, you know, how we can use these secrets for man to take the next evolutionary step to the stars. Yeah, he's kind of hoping that he can, like, capture Gilman and then... Mutate him. Mutate him into a land creature, and then see if he can basically use that to mutate humans into space creatures, I guess? Yeah. In, like, the most simple way of explaining it possible? Yeah. And, like, to be fair, that was the original hope of this, of, like, the fossil that was first found in the first movie. Um, so it's kind of a neat, like, continuation of that thread. For sure. So along this mission is Dr. Thomas Morgan, who is a geneticist and also just a little bit of, of like, a medical doctor a little bit. Yeah, I think Barton's a surgeon. Yes. Yeah. So I don't, why he's looking at, like, mutations is, you know, its own thing. But it is You know, we all have to have a hobby. <laughs> Marsha comes along as well, um, despite her husband's uh, attempts to dissuade her. We learn that she's, like, a hunter. Um, she, like, shoots some sharks, which is fucked up. Um... They're endangered, Marsha. What the fuck? Marsha married her husband at age 17, and it's been 10 years since then, and things... Are rocky. Yeah, it's, like, it feels like she's along for this trip because he doesn't trust leaving her at home, but he also doesn't like her being along on this trip because he doesn't trust her being here with other men either. Yes. Uh, Barton seems to oscillate between my wife is a tramp who isn't uh, loyal, trustworthy, that sort of thing. And uh, the other mode is, um, I feel like that's just the one mode. (laughs) He does, like, hold her up on a pedestal, but then if anyone looks at that pedestal, he gets angry and blames her for it. Yes. Like... It's clear that she's unhappy in this marriage and that she is, like, taking a look at the other men on the boat because she is unhappy. But she's not actually doing anything with the other men on the boat. And, quite frankly, Barton's behavior trying to enforce her loyalty isn't exactly the kind of behavior that makes you want to stay with someone. Yep. If you marry a lady who looks like Lee Snowden, you gotta be comfortable with people looking at her. Yeah, yeah. Their their marriage is in a rough spot, and it's largely because Barton himself has, like, essentially worked himself up into a complex about this whole yes. concern. Yeah, so he's very controlling, and that's that situation. Mm-hmm. They're tracking down the creature in the Everglades using sonar. Um, which they do take the time to explain how that works. It's always kind of neat when you watch a movie and there's like a technology that you just kind of like take for granted and it's so new that the movie has to like stop and explain it. They track Gilman up the river and into an encounter. This encounter... So all the men are on, like, a little dinghy, because, like, they're going further upstream than, like, their big cruise yacht can. And it's nighttime. And the creature attacks, knocks out their lights, so they light these um, gasoline lamps. Gilman attacks again and accidentally pours gasoline all over him. And in the skirmish, someone throws the lamp at him, and he lights up like a Christmas tree. They've also shot him twice with tranquilizers. He goes into the water so the fire's out, but he is tranquilized so they've captured him. But now they also need to treat his third-degree burns. In treating Gilman, they find that he has, um, like, normal, regular lungs in addition to his, like, gills. Um, similar to, uh... A type of fish they describe as like the African lungfish mm-hmm. that um, is a real fish. And uh, during like the wet season, they use their gills, and the dry season, they use regular lungs. Yeah. And they also find that uh, as Gilman's features heal, he has humanesque skin 
under his scales. Yeah, his scales were burned off, and there's, like, this human skin underneath, but, like, it is weird, because his face is still Gilman-shaped. Yeah, right? his frills have kind of gotten smaller to kind of look almost like ears. Mm-hmm. He still has, like, the big fish lips and Gilman eyes. His eyes have mutated, and they, they sort of argue about this a bit, but, like, his eyes are more like human eyes now instead of the big fish eyes. Yeah. But, I mean, like, the brow and, like, inset of the eyes is still very fish-like. Yeah. Like, he's dying on the boat because he can't get enough oxygen from the gills that have been burned off. So they do, like, a tracheotomy to open up these secondary mammal lungs. And all of a sudden he's, like, breathing air and everything. And there's, like, an argument about... And the movie never really, like, settles on this, like, what the explanation is. But, like, the argument between... Morgan and Barton is whether they've just like, you know, his scales burned off. So now he has human skin underneath and they opened up his lungs. So now he's breathing air. So whether they like made some changes to him and that's all that's happened or like Barton seems to think that just by exposing him to being able to breathe air, he's mutating into a land creature by himself. Yeah. Now, Morgan sees it more as, you know, bringing out what nature already provided. This is kind of the philosophical and thematic discussion going on throughout the whole film between Barton's mutation and, uh, and like, enforced mutation and Morgan's, like, nature provides, create the best situation for nature to do what she wants. Mm-hmm. Now, meanwhile, Grant has been a creep with Marsha this entire fucking time. Yeah. He's even gone so far as uh, assaulting her. Yep, he's he's making the attempt. Luckily, this assault happens just as Gilman is escaping. <laughs> and Gilman attacks Grant, just like whacking him um, against the wall, leaves Marsha alone, and then tries to dive into the water to escape. Um, now, he can only breathe through his, like, for lack of a better word, regular lungs, which means he's going to drown, so they have to go in and rescue him. Yeah, he doesn't realize he doesn't have gills anymore, so he yeah. doesn't bother to, like, hold his breath. He just dives in. Like a fish to water. Right. So they get him back on the boat, bring him back to health. Finally, they've made it back to San Francisco on the other side of the United States. Huh, you know, I hadn't actually thought of that. (laughs) I didn't realize how fucking weird that is, as well as unnecessary, given that nothing about the rest of the movie needs it to be San Francisco. There's just a shot of the Golden Gate Bridge. Huh. (laughs) Weird. And they bring Gilman, um... Can I still call him Gilman, or is he Lungman now? Right, Gilless Man. <laughs> they bring him to what I can only describe as, like, a research center. There's a main house, and then a pen outside with an electrified fence with sheep inside. Right, like, okay. Like, they, it's not like the sheep are there for him to eat. It's just like they've taken over this farm to be a research facility, and the farmer still needed to keep his sheep somewhere. Right, but they had an electrified fence set up. So, like, what I'm curious about is, like, did Barton phone ahead to this farm and be like, hey, so I need your farm with its nice, nice house... And I need your sheep pen. Uh, Can you install some electric fence, though? Or did he, like, call the operator in San Francisco and be like, Operator, is there a farm with an electrified fence? And it just happened to be these farmers who were like, Yeah, I mean, sheep are dangerous. (laughs) To be fair, the things that go after sheep are dangerous. And we'll just put a pin in that for a minute. (laughs) Fair. So, Gilman is in this cage with the sheep, and he also becomes a silent witness to the Tennessee Williams play going on next door. Yes, precisely. Specifically of Barton continuing to be distrusting and controlling and verbally abusive to his wife, Grant 
being a creep and chasing after her, despite her being like, no, fucking leave me alone. Oh, but you just haven't gotten to know me yet. I'm a nice guy. (laughs) To be fair to Grant, he never claims he's a nice guy. Yes, that is true. (laughs) He just claims that she hasn't gotten to know him yet. (laughs) Now, remember that, that pin about the sheep? Yeah, so a cougar arrives. They call it a mountain lion, but that's like... The same, the same thing. thing. It's just vernacular. And finds a way up a tree to jump down into the fence and attack the sheep. And Gilman is just kind of like... To be fair, he has a little bit of brain damage, they mm-hmm. do say, because he went without oxygen for a while. So he's just kind of watching this cougar, like, do things. And then as soon as it starts, like, attacking the sheep and, like, trying to tear them apart, Gilman reacts and attacks the cougar and just fucking, like breaks its back Bane style. Just yeah, like yeah, 100%. completely murders this cougar. Yes. And everyone is rushing to the pen to be like, what the fuck is going on? And Barton is like, ah, oh, he's still too beast-like. The like, beast flesh creeps back. <laughs> and, like, the, the mutations haven't kept. While Morgan is like, he only attacked when he was under threat. That's showing, like, a level of control higher than what it was before, where, you know, you're just, like, attacking for the sake of attacking, not necessarily a wild animal. And he was fighting to protect the sheep. He hasn't been fighting the sheep. So, like, there is, like, a level of intelligence still here. Yeah, so there's, like, this whole thing that starts to develop in this movie that is, I guess, sort of like a nature v. nurture question exactly but it's 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 really about like the nature of violence in man versus in beast and like why people resort to violence and is that like an innate trait or is that learned is it biological is it psychological and it's sort of being mirrored between the creature and when it responds to violence or not and the whole situation (laughs) With Barton and his wife and Grant and Morgan, who's the good guy. (laughs) Yeah, Morgan has this conversation with Barton saying, like, the creature's being nice because we're being kind to him. And Barton's like, no, I know that kindness only begets hate. Because I'm kind, like, he doesn't say this outright, but I'm kind to my wife and she just hates me. And Morgan's like, well, I think you should think about whether you're actually being kind. <laughs> and Barton's like, nah, I'm pretty sure she's just, like, an awful person. I'm the nicest person around, and everyone is after her, and everyone hates me, and... Love is love. met with betrayal. Yeah, just all these things. So this prompts Morgan to go to Marsha to be like, hey, I think your husband needs some psychiatric help. Can you try to encourage him to do that? Before Marcia gets the chance to do that, Barton has kind of had it up to here with Grant. So he goes, at that night, he goes to Grant and he's like, pack your things and get out of here. Not because I've learned that you've assaulted my wife, but because I suspect that you're having an affair with her. And yeah. it's her fault. I mean, to be fair, he is getting rid of Grant instead of, like, going and, like beating up Marsha or something. Like, yes, he's been, like, very unkind and verbally abusive to her, but, like, at least he recognizes that, like, the the problem here is Grant, and that's true. Uh, so Grant packs his things, and as he's leaving, he makes a snide comment of, like, what's wrong, Barton? Uh, worried about your wife? This causes Barton to lose his temper, and he pistol whips Grant and murders him in front of... Of Gilman. Now Barton's like, oh fuck, I just murdered someone. I know, I'll put this body in with Gilman. Easy cover up. So he does that. And as soon as he locks the door behind him, Gilman's like getting very angry. Because he's like, you can't pin this on me, you (laughs) asshole. Um, And he breaks out of his pen and goes chasing after Barton. Now he's, like, going through the house, um, looking for Barton, stumbles in on Marsha, and she's screaming her head off. Lee Snowden has a great scream made for horror movies. 
Morgan has made it in here and he's trying to protect Marsha. And the creature, like, looks at this and then continues looking for Barton. Yeah. So he's selecting who he's looking for. He's not just going on a wild rampage. Exactly. He finds Barton and fucking murders him. Yes. Just fucking, like, throws him from the top balcony, like... With such velocity, like, I'm sure he's a pancake. Yeah, he doesn't, like, pick Barton up and then drop him to the ground. He, like, tosses him at the ground. Yeah. And, like, the whole time he's going after Barton, like, Gilman is not using doors. He is just going through things. He's not moving around furniture. He is going through furniture. Yeah. There's even a moment where there's an open door... That he sees Bart is running past, and he goes through the closed door to get at him. Yes. It's wonderful. Justice served with Barton's death, Gilman starts to walk off the compound. Uh, he's been shot a couple times, um, and he is bleeding. And when he gets to the gate, um, the <clears throat> gate man tries to stop him by shooting him, and Gilman wrecks that dude wrecks the fence, and continues walking. He's, he's like the juggernaut, okay? Yeah, it's it's cool. Um, the next day, Morgan and the remaining doctors, who I haven't mentioned because it's not important, they are working to track down Gilman, and Marsha is in a black dress because, you know, her husband's dead, and she's leaving this area. She's going back home. She does say, you know, I hope to see you again, Morgan. And Morgan's like, you know it. That's my attempt at a deep voice. Um, (laughs) Okay. And cut to Gilman. Um, They hear a report that he's made his way to the sea. And indeed he has, and he's walking on the beach. And Morgan has said, you know, oh, he's heading to the beach, to the ocean. Well, he'll probably drown Mm -hmm. with his human lungs. Yeah. But... He's made the next step. Something along those lines, Morgan says. And I think what he means by that is the fact that it was like a selected rampage. Um, yeah. And then, like, heading to the ocean. Not just continuing to rampage, but, like, he knows where he's going. He yes. has agency and has impulse control. Yes. The end. <laughs> they don't find Gilman, I guess. Yeah, he, he makes it to the sea, and there's, like, a shot of him looking out over the ocean... And then the last shot of the movie is him walking toward the camera, which means he's walking toward the ocean. And then it just says the end. Yeah. And, I mean, the implication is that he walks into the sea, which means that the implication is that he drowns and dies. But it does leave it open, if Universal wanted, to another sequel, because we don't see him drown. That's true. I mean, like... I found the ending really frustrating, to be honest, Sarah. It was the most frustrating thing about the movie to me, for a few different reasons. It's funny how Gilman getting shot and, like, us watching his lifeless body sink into the sea was like a, oh, he might not be dead, but, like, him walking off camera. We don't even see him walk into the ocean. He just walks off camera in the direction of the ocean is like, no, he definitely committed suicide. Um, I don't know if he committed suicide. I don't know if he was like, now to end my life. If you kill yourself by accident, is that still not suicide? No, that's accidental death. Okay. Well, regardless, I don't like how non-committally it's shot. Like, even if you didn't want to show him, like, drowning to death as the last image of your movie... At least show me him walking into the ocean, rather than just him walking off frame implied to the ocean, you know? Yeah. It's, like, weirdly not definitive enough to feel like it's the ending. It just feels like the movie... It really comes out of nowhere. It just feels like the movie ran out of film. Yeah. On a larger scale from that, structurally speaking, in my opinion, it's weird. Because as much as, like, the storyline about Barton and his jealousy of his wife and all of that has kind of been resolved, to be honest... Up to the point where, like, even after she's, like, shaking his hand and being like, I hope we meet again, and him being like, yeah, absolutely, and, you know, the cops on the phone being like, they've tracked him, he's gone to the coast, I thought we still had a whole other act of the movie to go. Like, I was expecting a whole third act where they would be 
you know, chasing down the creature and trying to find him. And, like, Morgan would be the one leading the chase. And, like, you know, Marsha would get involved in it somehow. And the two of them would get closer and actually, like, end up together in, like, a happy romantic ending. And, you know, then Gilman would walk into the sea and, and die and drown because he can no longer survive in his natural environment because man is a cruel and fickle creature who has uh, permanently destroyed this life form to satisfy his own curiosity because Gilman is the most sympathetic character in this movie. Yes. I feel about the ending the same way that you do, but it does underline that Barton was the villain all along. Right. Because the movie ends as soon as he's dead. Right, in classic universal fashion with absolutely no denouement practically. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very good point. Universal sort of goes back to the classic Frankenstein misunderstood sympathetic monster well, like one last time for this one, you know? And it's a good well. Sure. Like, Gilman was sort of sympathetic in the second one because they capture him and, like, put it on display at SeaWorld. But, you know, he was still... Like a cornered animal. Yeah, and, like, his central motivation was still, like, getting... (laughs) Right, to fuck some human babe. Like, here, he's fully, I think, sympathetic. Like, they just show up, burn his skin off and his gills off. And then, like, force him to become a air-breathing creature. And then there's no world that he belongs in, right? Because, like, he can't go back to the ocean. And he can't integrate into society. No! He He's can't still talk more... or read or... <laughs> like, he just walks around going... <sighs> yeah, he he's still more fish than man. Yes. Like... Somehow turning into an air-breathing creature has given him the, like, profile of a linebacker. So, like, maybe he could go play football somewhere. But, like, (laughs) that's it. I also want to point out, in the past two movies, Gilman's primary motivation has been, ooh, lady. Right, and it's not this time at all. No, he completely leaves Marsha alone. And it's like, is it because he's learned impulse control He's become more civilized. Uh, Is it the brain damage? Yeah. Is it that, like, he doesn't have the same impulses that he used to? Right? Like, he's not operating on instinct as strongly anymore? Exactly. Um, It's interesting, because, like, the movie does put Lee Snowden in a sexy bathing suit and puts her in the water and has loving underwater photography of her body underwater in a sexy bathing suit but like it's not to tempt the creature like she gets into trouble because she dives too deep and ignores the advice to like avoid getting fucking like the bends and so she does and then they have to rescue her but it's not the creature and like the creature looks at her a couple times in the movie but like mostly his only interaction with her is he inadvertently saves her from being sexually assaulted And then he accidentally scares her in the house on his way to go murder her husband. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Gilman's given up blondes, you know? Like, it's twice now that they've broken his heart. Yeah, maybe the fact that, like, the oxygen flow to his blood is different means he's not getting, like, aroused in the same way. Oh my god. Um, The eyebrow movement (laughs) that I just witnessed. (laughs) Um, His his transformation is odd, and it's hard to explain, really, because they could have had it be much more purposeful, like had, you know, because Barton wanted to, like, purposely turn him into a land creature. But Barton's reaction to what has happened is to be like, oh, we gave him a tracheotomy, and that mutated him all on his own into being a totally different type of creature. And Morgan's like, no, we burned his gills off and we burned his scales off. That's why he doesn't have them anymore. Like, (laughs) you know, and they're having this debate. And I think it's clear, like, you know, the point of the story is the creature walks among us now. So he's a land man. But the movie does a neat job of sidestepping having to explain how this happens by having it be part of the story 
that the scientists disagree on how this has happened, which yeah. then not only avoids marrying us to like an explanation that could be very silly, but also fuels the movie's conflicts and themes. Yeah, it. this movie is interesting because it breaks the formula mm -hmm. because the movie is not about Gilman. He's sidelined in his own movie. Yes. Like it's thematically about him, but that's it. So the, the script here has, you know, a new idea about what to do with Gilman, right? Like, we went to his territory, then we brought him to our territory. But in this movie, it's like we're bringing our territory to him, in a way, by forcing him to be more like us. And by exploring that idea, like, this is probably, of the three movies, the best one, not so much as a horror movie, but as a science fiction film. Yeah. Because it's actually exploring that idea and what the like implications are exactly and you know all of these sci-fi horror movies tend to have a bit of corny scientific philosophizing in them you know the requisite speeches about like what man was not meant to know and, and that kind of thing right or you know in the second movie like revenge of the creature the scientists had all those like weird speeches about, like, science being, like, a beautiful lady and whatever. <laughs> um, this movie has scientific philosophizing, but for once it's actually, like, tied in with, like, the story, like, the human story. The themes of the human story are tied to the themes of the monster story because they are following the same philosophies and and asking the same philosophical questions about, like, what drives people to violence. And it's like when episodes of Star Trek are good. <laughs> because, like, any, most Star Trek shows, usually you'll have, like, an A-plot where it's, like, the Enterprise runs into a subspace quantum anomaly, and it's causing the ship to have problems with the structural integrity field, or whatever. And then there'll be, like, a B story that's, like, Geordi needs to learn how to play cards, or something. <laughs> and, like, in the worst Star Trek episodes, those two things are, like, completely different. They have nothing to do with each other. We're just cutting back and forth. In the best Star Trek episodes they will find a way for those things to be linked on a thematic level. And that's what we're getting in this movie, where there is this complex adult human story that, like, is, you know, some cheap melodrama. You know, we're not watching Streetcar Named Desire here or anything. We're not, like, it's still The Creature Walks Among Us. But it is a level above the kind of very basic human stories we get in these movies, which tend to be like, I'm handsome. You have boobs. We've known each other for half an hour. Let us profess our undying love for each other. Yeah, and I think that's really seen in the fact that Marsha and Morgan don't get together at the end. Right. They're just people who have a better relationship between themselves than everyone else in the movie because... They're adults? And Morgan's not an asshole. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny that you bring in the fact that like this feels like it's dealing with its themes in a more scientific sci-fi fashion. Mm -hmm. um, because I was thinking about the way that this movie is thinking about genetics and evolution and that being how we get into space. Mm -hmm. And 2001 A Space Odyssey, which comes out in 1968, so like over 10 years from now. But this was like the first time that I've really seen outside of 2001 and a very like highbrow sci-fi text the idea of like oh we need to evolve ourselves that was really interesting to me and like it's interesting because the writer of this movie was one of the three credited writers on the original so it's sort of like someone being like aha now i can really explore the ideas that i was like interested in the first time around yeah the speeches from the scientists, like from Morgan or Barton, are written in a very, like, thought-provoking manner. Like, Yeah, Morgan talks about the jungle versus the stars and how man is on the precipice to go either way. Right. The jungle being um, a bit more of a, a chaotic, bestial place, uh, instinctual violent place, whereas the stars, you know, that's like the forefront of discovery and um, 
the next step of scientific understanding. And sort of an implied Star Trekian notion of like... Civility? Yeah, that humans will be ready to go to the stars when we have like shed our animal baser things of like hate and violence and cruelty and all of that, right? Yeah. It's like, it really was some like very Star Trek feeling speeches in terms of what the ethics of this movie are about, which is about what is man and are human beings animals and thus sort of doomed to stay on this planet and abuse it and ultimately destroy themselves by like using up their resources and you know and being these just like animals who won't think about the larger picture of things or can humanity reach for something more and become something that makes like very specific choices about the world around them and you know choices that lead them to properly use its own resources so that they can go to the stars on their own terms and yada 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 and Gilman does that. Um, I don't know if he ends up at the stars, <laughs> maybe in the sense that he dies and goes to heaven. I, I don't know. But he makes these very deliberate choices given the environment around him. It's a very like small, specific instance of mm -hmm. it in the climax. But it, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, because the human story about Barton is contrasted with the horror story about Gilman, right? And it's like... Here is a man who devolves to the level of the beast, and here is the beast that can make choices like a man. Yeah. Right? That's that's what's going on here. That being said, the violence and destruction in this movie is very good. Yes. Very shocking. Um, not just when Gilman is just wrecking people and cougars, um, but when he gets set on fire like oh, yeah. that, I was not expecting the level of fire <laughs> well and like even that whole sequence like he leaps out of the water onto the boat yeah it's, it, it is really cool yeah like the action and violence in this movie are very pronounced and direct um you know the storyline something new the cinematography shows skill and panache there's a lot of times watching this where i was like oh this is a cool shot not just the curtain scene <laughs> Yeah, there's a scene where, like, Marsha's changing into a swimsuit, and she's, like, silhouetted behind a curtain, and it's like, oh, <laughs> hello. No, I really liked this one. Plus, Gilman goes out there, he's protecting ladies from creeps, he's bringing murderers to vigilante justice as the Punisher. <laughs> yeah, Marvel, retire Frank Castle, um, <laughs> you know, drop the skull logo uh bring us the gill man as the punisher and give him like a logo that's like you know the his gill man face with like big kissable lips right um the cast is pretty uniformly good like they're yeah. all playing parts that are you know maybe two-dimensional at best but they're all doing it really well like everyone's playing their parts perfectly no one comes across as like wooden or unbelievable like rex reason is giving his star trekian speeches like a boss uh jeff morrow is like totally believable in the role of this like conflicted mad scientist who isn't just mad because he wants to show them show them all he does have a line that's like yes. basically that yes. and it's like oh my but it's like it, like this movie's premise is just as much about like man how much would it suck to be married to a mad scientist as it is about, like, Gilman and stuff, right? <laughs> but, like, uh, Lee Snowden is doing a really good portrayal of this, like, put-upon wife. The guy playing Grant is really good at being, like... Gross? At being gross in a way that, like, is clear that we're meant to find him gross, but doesn't feel overstated to the point where it's like, oh, how is this guy not in prison already? Yeah, totally. He feels like the kind of gross that you, you know, might expect in someone who's, like, athletic and... Like one of the Grease dudes from the movie Grease. Right. He's he's athletic and he's handsome and he can see that Marsha's not happy in her marriage. And so he thinks he's got an opening and she's really hot and he just sort of expects that a woman should respond to him 
that way. Yeah. Um, you know, he's not going around like, Marsha. He's you know? not played by Peter Laurie? Yeah, he's not worm tongue. Like, it's not like, <laughs> he's not on a sex offender list somewhere. Yet. Right. Well, he won't ever be because he's dead now. True. Yeah, I think I think this is a good movie. Um, I had a really fun time watching it. Now, I think this is horror, but because you brought up its sci-fi elements and the prominence of sci-fi, do you think this is horror? I do. Um, I think that it is very, very heavily sci-fi, but, like, things can be more than one thing. Absolutely. And I th- Gilman, especially. Right. And I think... There's a lot of horror here if you think about it, right? Like, just the horror of what's been done to Gilman, the horror of Marsha's shitty life, the uh, the violence that occurs. Um, Gilman is very sympathetic in this movie, but, like, as I already said, that's very much in the mold of Frankenstein, and Universal's been doing that for years at this point, and we've considered all our other monster movies horror, right? So yeah. I, think, I think we're still good to rank this one. Okay. So where were you looking, Sarah? Well, the first creature from the Black Lagoon is ranked at number 29. Yes. And the second movie, Revenge of the Creature, is ranked at 58. Yes. And I feel confident in saying that The Creature Walks Among Us can be somewhere in between those two. I would agree. But that's a huge range. That's like 30 movies. Mm -hmm. So in an effort to try to narrow it, um, I found myself drawn to the lower half. Okay, yeah. Just, you know, it doesn't feel right to compare this with, like, Vampire, House of Wax, Dead of Night. Like, these these just, it just, it doesn't feel right. Okay. I was drawn to Jujin Yuki Otoko. Yeah, that makes sense. At uh, 55, also thinking about, you know, the in-between things of man and beast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I thought that was a good floor because right below that is the amazing Mr. X slash mm-hmm. the spiritualist and yeah, yeah. <laughs> Working my way up from there, you know, there's some like movies that, you know, I feel like it can go pretty head to head with the creature walks among us. Um, the man that could not hang, mm-hmm. I would put creature above this. The devil commands is kind of odd. So creature, you know, it could go above that. Son of Dracula. Um, is a mixed bag. Is a mixed bag. Yeah. Uh, but I kind of stopped around the Leopard Man. Okay. Because above that is Dementia, um, the man without a face. And mm. those movies are really strong. The Creature Walks Among Us is also pretty strong, but, like, was the visuals as consistently, like, boom, pow, wallop as, like... The Man Without a Face versus Gilman. Like, like the visuals in Creature Walks Among Us are really striking, but, like, Man Without a Face has, like, surrealism sure, all sure. over. So, I don't know. I just kind of had my ceiling at around the Leopard Man because it also has a little bit of a mixed bag. Yeah, um, so our ranges are basically the same. Oh! Um, I also... Figured this was worse than Creature from the Black Lagoon, but better than Revenge of the Creature. Um, so I worked my way down from Creature from the Black Lagoon, and my ceiling was number 41, The Maze, because... Frog Boy. Yeah. And that movie is interesting in the weird Lovecraftian things that it's doing, but, like, <laughs> listen, <laughs> they tried their best, but Frog Boy's real goofy, and I think... The creature in all three movies is a much better realized monster. Um, Aquatic man beast? Yes, exactly, yeah. So uh, I thought this could go above the maze but under Queen of Spades. But I kept working down because, like, that's my ceiling. Uh, My floor was the same as yours. Uh, I thought this potentially Jujinyuki Otoko was better than this, but this was definitely better than Amazing Mr. X. So 41 to 56 instead of 45 to 56. Um, Looking at sort of the arguments you made for your range, I would be comfortable putting this below Dementia and above the Leopard Man. Yeah, I think this is a really strong showing, um, especially of like the motives or impulses 
around murder or around violence in general as compared to how they are handled in The Leopard Man, one of the first movies that really shows the psychology behind a serial killer. Yeah, this movie is thinking about the stuff that's happening in it on a level deeper than just, like, moving the plot pieces around, and I really appreciate that. Yeah. I I wasn't sure about The Man Who Changed His Mind, um, because that movie's just, like, so fun. Yeah, The Creature Walks Among Us is good, but I don't know if it's fun. Like, the violence is dope, but, um... I think because our bad guys get got by the creature himself, that level of enjoyment, that was really good. As much as I enjoyed the black comedy in Man Who Changed His Mind, and the title is still just... (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm cool with this spot. Okay, so then entering the list at the new number 45 is The Creature Walks Among Us. From 1956, directed by John Sherwood. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask Box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and on whatever podcast app you choose to use if you subscribe to our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review, or by just sharing the show with a friend on social media, or by heading over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to special bonus content, uh, such as the bonus audio that we put out every week on Mondays for $5 and $10 patrons. Uh, So that is patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week it's either going to be a treat or we're going to be very sad. One or the other. Oh, no! Uh, I have not seen this movie. Uh, It is an indie horror movie released by United Artists. It's called The Black Sleep. It's directed by Reginald LeBorg. Remember him? Yeah, what did he do again? He did a a few. Just a lot of, like, the B-Universal movies of the 1940s. Like, a few Mummy movies here and there. A few, um, you know, Jungle Woman movies here and there. That kind of stuff. Okay. Um, and the film stars Basil Rathbone, Lon Chaney Jr., John Carradine, Bella Lugosi, Tor Johnson, and Akeem Tamaroff. You say that like I should know who that is? You know, the guy who's like in all of Orson Welles' later movies, who he just like got off the street somewhere in Turkey and kept using. Oh yeah! He's like the guy who's sick at the start of Mr. Arcadden. He's like the guy who's always waiting at the advocate's office in the trial. He's the like Mexican gangster in Touch of Evil. What a weird movie! Yeah. So it's kind of like a weird reunion throwback movie. Okay. I am very intrigued. Yeah, it's either going to be a lot of fun, or given the state of most of these people's careers, it might be really sad. We'll see. Next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.